Um, I'm going to be drawing this morning off some ideas put forth by uh, the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. That's a group that's led by Dr. Preston Sprinkle, who's a theologian, an evangelical theologian located in Boise. And uh, he and his team, they do a bunch of books and podcasts and video series and webinars all pertaining to issues around sexuality and faith and gender and family and these things. And I, I want to let you know that, both so you know that I'm leaning on their material this morning, but also uh, that they have wonderful resources for everybody out there. A lot of it is free. Um, it's at centerforfaith.com. So I just want to commend that resource to you. It's really good stuff. Um, and you're going to see glimpses, uh, glimpses of, of, of that stuff. We talked about singleness last week, like I said, and how it's so underrated um, both in the culture and in the church. And I think oftentimes singleness, although the church has implied that if you're single, you're not yet whole. Like you have to have a spouse in order to be whole. While the wider culture has taught you that you're not whole in, unless you're sexually active in all the ways that you want to be sexually active. And, and I think that's just, both are so ludicrous. Singleness is actually awesome. Like you, you have the freedom to be devoted to that thing that you're doing, that thing God's called you to and to run forward. And, and you can run forward fully in intimate relationships, walking in, in, in agape and phileo love, those deep intimate friendships that God has for you. But there is truly sacrifice involved, as you know. If, if you're single, the scriptures have for this season called you to live a celibate life, to, to, to live without having sex. And there's a reason for that. It's not because scripture is repressive. It's not because traditional Christians for the past 2,000 years have, have been prudes. It's not because they didn't value sex either. On the contrary, I think it's because there's something sacred about sex and we believe it was made to be valued more than it is. Let me say this, your level of intimacy should not exceed your level of commitment. There's a reason why you shouldn't trust your bank teller with your deepest, darkest secrets. You don't have that intimate level of relationship. You're, you're not that committed, so you shouldn't, you know what I'm saying? The same reason you shouldn't, you know, tell your waitress your social security number. It's just not a good idea, right? Now, I saw someone talking this week online. I, I, I hadn't ever even seen this scenario before, but this young woman was very upset because her boyfriend had, had drained their, they had a joint checking account, and her boyfriend had drained it and leaving her like penniless and run away. And she's like, oh, what do I do? She was really distraught. And one piece of advice she got was like, uh, maybe, you know, don't open a joint checking account with somebody you're not married to. Now, I had never even considered that before. Um, like, it's just a thought that I didn't know that anybody did that when they're not married. But I thought it was sound advice. Because being a boyfriend is, you know, all things considered, it's a pretty low-level commitment position, you know? Uh, if he was highly committed, then you'd probably be a fiancé or a husband, right? Um, it, so sharing a joint account, though, well, that's very intimate. It really is. It leaves you extremely vulnerable. Like a person could really hurt you. So if a person isn't committed to you, but asks for that kind of access, like to a joint checking account, I mean, guys, the answer should be no. 
It really should. It should be, sorry. No, no, no. To get that close to me, you have to actually commit to me. Like, we have to, we have, to have, like, the same goals in life. You know what I'm saying? Like, we have to have, uh, you, you know, like, we have to be moving in the same direction. You have to give me access to all of your money, too. We have to join our lives together in order to have that level of intimacy. Sharing your body is even more intimate than that. Sharing your body is thoroughly vulnerable. And if a person wants complete access to your body, they need to have that complete level of commitment to you first. Now that, I know, flies in the face of everything the culture is saying today because we're in the midst of this sort of hookup culture where there's supposed to be no commitment required to have sex. There's there's no sacredness to sex. It's just a thing that you do with your bodies and the only thing necessary is consent. Now, people are talking a lot about consent, and I, I want to I say this. Look, the, consent is absolutely necessary. There's no sexual act inside or outside of marriage that should ever happen against a person's will, ever. Are you with me? Okay. That is a barrier that should never be crossed. Sexual abuse happens inside of marriage as well as outside, and it often happens because a person feels like they're entitled to sex whenever they want it, and they won't take no for an answer. That is wickedness, friends. That is wickedness. And it in no way reflects the love that Jesus has for his church, which is what marriage is supposed to be. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I want to suggest to you that consent alone is not sufficient. It's not enough. It never was. I don't know why we ever thought that it was enough for safety and for health in marriage, in, in a, 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 a your sexual life. It, I was recently listening to a, a, a podcast series, um, and it was put out by NPR, which is not a Christian group. And they were, they were doing a three-part series on this idea of consent. And it was fascinating. They're going through all these different stories, showing people getting hurt as a result of like, this muddy thing, like, the, was that consent or was that not consent? And, and, and people were left so confused and heartbroken. And you have these situations that are bordering on abuse, but was it really abuse or was it just a misunderstanding and all these things? And after three full episodes of diving into this, they're left like, you could hear it in their voices. They're just like still as confused as when they started. And they're like, this is such a hard Thing, And then they brought on this man. His name was Michael Lisak. I'd never heard of him. He works apparently with victims of sexual assault. And he made this observation. He said, we've been focusing on the wrong word this whole time. We've been using this word consent. But consent is when you give someone permission to do something to you. That's actually the definition. That's literally what it means. But sex is not something you do to a person, but something you do with a person. In other words, sex is not merely an experiential thing. It is, by its intention, a relational thing. We are not just physical beings. We are physical beings, but there's a whole lot more going on inside of us. Sex is indeed a physical act, but it's so much more. And when we remove the relationship, we cheapen it. Sex is actually a gift from God. It's a powerful gift. 
but he gave it to us. So why did he give it to us? Well, there's three reasons that I could think of. First, he did give it to us for pleasure. He gave us a lot of things for pleasure. You know, he didn't have to give us taste buds, but he did. Eating can be fun. Also, he gave us sex as a, 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 uh, a pleasurable experience. Second, for, for procreation, that's something that's kind of underrated. We don't even talk that much about that now. But it's interesting that God designed the human race to multiply through sex. That's pretty important, isn't it? And finally, for deep bonding. When people have sex, stuff happens with hormones. Oxytocin and vasopressin are released into our bodies, and that forms an attachment, like a bond. So if you think sex is something that that you only do with your body without any consequence, it's just flat out wrong. It's one of the reasons I think there are so many broken hearts out there. There's a deep bond that's formed, and then it's severed. Of course, that's going to hurt, isn't it? Sex is a volatile thing. It's a thing that can cause powerful reactions to bring us together or to drive us apart. And it needs to be treated with great care and great value. And that's why I believe the New Testament ethic restricts sex to this thing we call marriage. Marriage is like a crucible. It's like a container in which chemical reactions take place, but they can take place safely without spilling all over everywhere. They're safe. It's safe inside that crucible. So what do we mean by this term marriage? Because the fact is, even that term can be a very tricky thing to navigate depending on where you live or, or when you live because the well, laws come into play, don't they? Like in some nations, because of this, you have two different wedding ceremonies. You have a civil ceremony and a religious ceremony. The civil ceremony to be married in the eyes of whatever law that you're under, and then the religious ceremony to be married and give your vows under the eyes of of God, right? And I want to reiterate that in this series, and particularly in this sermon, we're not focusing on that first realm. We're not focusing on the civil realm. Um, we, instead, we're focusing on how Jesus calls us his followers to live. Are you with me? Um, It's not that the other side isn't important. In fact, those questions are really important. But here's the thing. At core, that's not an issue about sexuality, is it? At core, that's an issue of how we live and thrive in a pluralistic society where we have both religious freedom and religious diversity. You and I have religious freedom. So do others. Everyone else has religious freedom too, and their religious beliefs might not line up. So then what do we do? That's what those questions are about. It's not about sexuality. Are you with me? So I just want to reiterate that. Um, we, we We can't tell everyone else to follow the ethics of a savior that they don't follow. Like in other areas too, for example, you know, we can't tell people that they have to be generous to needy people around them. We can't tell people outside the church to love their enemies. We can't tell them to sacrifice for one another. Here's what we can do. We can point others to the beauty and the benefits of following Jesus and the beautiful ethic that he has set there because there's beautiful benefits and we would all prosper if we followed him. 
That's right and good to talk about. But legislating that is a little bit different. So that's a very tricky realm. And we are going to talk about that, by the way. I want you to know, just not in this series, because it's not strictly about sexuality. But that crosses over into a lot of different areas. So if we're followers of Jesus, well, what we're called to do is to remind one another of his ways and how he's called us. And one of those ways is how we act in marriage and what marriage is actually supposed to, to look like. So God has given us a very specific ideal, and that's what we're zeroing in on. So how does the New Testament actually describe marriage? Here's our question. Let's look at Ephesians 5.31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let his wife see that she respects her husband. We'll look at more of those scriptures in a few minutes, but this is a good one to start with because it has all the elements here that are reflected throughout the New Testament. Marriage is an exclusive lifelong commitment. It's a commitment between two people, a husband and a wife, who love one another. Oh, and, and by the way, it also has a metaphor in there that this Christian union is to be a picture of how Jesus loves his church. Now, Let's notice, our governments might not agree with any point on this. In fact, some nations, depending on where you live, um, would deny that marriage is, uh, is only between two people. They might allow multiple husbands and multiple wives. There could be old school polygamy, or it could be new school polyamory. Either way, civil laws might allow that, but the New Testament picture of marriage does not allow that for followers of Christ. You with me? It doesn't line up with what the definition is. Similarly, civil laws don't demand faithfulness and, and exclusivity. Most places don't have laws against adultery. In fact, some couples themselves agree that they're going to have an open relationship where they can have multiple lovers but stay married. Now, that might be legal, but that does not meet what the definition of marriage is for followers of Jesus, and that is not something that's on the table. Adultery is forbidden in Christian marriage, even if you both agree to it. In some places, marriage is not lifelong. In some places, under certain sects of, of other religions, you can sign a temporary marriage contract. Did you know that? We're going to be married for five years, and then we can decide whether we want to re-up. Now, that might be a thing in these other places, and... I, you know, again, that's a complicated issue. But whether you live in that place or not, as a Christian, you don't have that option. It's a lifelong commitment. That's what this is. That's what we've been called to. And of course, some nations like our own uh, deny that, that there needs to be a husband and a wife. So there could be two husbands or, or two wives. But once again, this doesn't fit the New Testament description uh, really anywhere in the New Testament, which always calls for diversity in marriage. Um, I want to read you a quote from the late, great Tim Keller. Any Tim Keller fans in here? There's a lot of you. Yeah, right on. He just died last week. He was, a, he was like a hero of, of ours. We saw him up in New York a couple of times and wonderful things to say. Um, this is something he said several years ago. It's a, 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 an extended quote, so hang with me here. In Genesis 1, you see pairs of different but complementary things made to work together. Heaven and earth sea and land, even God and humanity. It's part of the brilliance of God's creation that diverse, 
unlike things are made to unite and create dynamic holes which generate more and more life and beauty through their relationships. As N.T. Wright points out, uh, the creation and uniting of male and female at the end of Genesis 2 is the climax of all this. That means that male and female have unique, non-interchangeable glories. They see, they each see and do things that the other cannot. Sex was created by God to be a way to mingle these strengths and glories within a lifelong covenant of marriage. Marriage is the most intense, though not the only place, where this reunion of male and female takes place in human life. Male and female reshape, learn from, and work together. Therefore, in one of the great ironies of late modern times, when we celebrate diversity in so many other cultural sectors, we have truncated the ultimate unity and diversity, intergendered marriage. Without understanding this vision, the sexual prohibitions in the Bible make no sense. Same-sex relationships not only cannot provide for each spouse, they cannot provide children with a deep connection to each half of humanity through the parents of each gender. There is a a beautiful unity and diversity that God has called us to in Christian marriage. Now, this whole understanding, this whole definition that we looked at is a a lifelong exclusive commitment uh, becomes a crucible to contain something as powerful as sex. It becomes a safe place where two people can give their whole selves, their hopes, their dreams, their finances, and yes, their bodies. Now, obviously, not every marriage turns out to be safe, does it? Why is that? Well, that's because not everybody keeps their covenant. When you stop loving, marriage stops being safe. And I want you guys to know this. We believe strongly in marriage here in this house, but we don't believe in trying to save a marriage at all cost. More specifically, when a spouse is being abused or when children are being abused and come to us we believe that saving them is far more important than saving the marriage. We counsel the wife to separate from an abusive husband, because that's usually how it goes, and we believe that this is right and good. We always hope for healing and restoration in that relationship, but sometimes that's just not possible. And we know that God hates divorce, I know, but he, he also hates it when, when the strong oppress the weak. I think it breaks his heart. Fortunately, the New Testament shows us exactly what a good and, and, and loving and a healthy marriage is supposed to look like in order for it to be that safe crucible where all kinds of intimacy are protected. And I am going to invite Pastor Janelle to come up and talk about that. Thank you, sir. Um, I don't understand how Dan and I are going to be married 28 years this year, and I'm younger than both Joshua and Jason, but we have this many more years on you guys. I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. Um, I want to talk about the beauty of marriage, and I know that this isn't everyone's picture, but just bear with me because 
um, Ephesians 5 talks about um, just the beauty of it, and so that's what I'm going to focus on today. So like I said, next week, um, we will, Dan and I will have been married 28 years. Um, I remember when my parents hit that milestone, I'm like, wow, they're old. They've been doing this forever, and now here I am. Um, but we have a lot of stories about doing it wrong, doing, you know, messing it up, hurting each other, um, really blowing it. However, in those 28 years, we have more stories about getting it right and um, our marriage is at a place now that I wouldn't trade for the world, and it's in a place that there was days I didn't think it would ever come. So um, let's jump into Ephesians 5 and hear what marriage of a man and a woman who are Jesus followers is to look like. So I'm mostly in the message version today, which 521 says, Out of respect for Christ, be courteously reverent to one another. NIV says, Submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Submit to one another? What? I think in Christian uh, circles, that's been so overlooked, where when you say the word submit, it's like, oh, yeah, women submits to men. But here, he's telling us it's both ways. Husbands are to submit to the wives as well as wives to their husbands. And he's going to get specific here in this chapter about what this looks like. Verse 22, wives, understand and support your husbands in ways that show support for Christ. Understand. Ladies, that's tricky because men are weird, right? <laughs> right? Yes, yes. Y'all are weird. You're confusing. I realize we are too, but you are weirder. <laughs> right, Sarah? Yes, yes. Um, but understand and support. I love the definition here of support where it says to bear all or part of the weight, hold up and keep upright. I think about the different seasons in our marriage where I've had to provide that support and bearing that weight. I'll tell you, it is hard. It is hard and it's beautiful and it's, you know, what the word is telling us to do. Um, it takes sacrifice, laying down your preferences and desires. You know, you think about, um, you know, in different ways, what it looks like. I think it looks like encouraging. I think it looks like championing his dreams and just carrying weight in different seasons. You know, this isn't saying it's always like this, but it is times where he maybe needs more of the support and more of that understanding. Ladies, I think it's also really important that we support our husbands with our mouths. Um, I think that this is something that is easy to let our tongue run away with us. Well, do you know what he did? And da, 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 da. And I think um, we're not building him up. We're not understanding. We're not supporting. Um, particularly when they're not around. I think that's so vital to a healthy marriage is to speak positively of each other even when they're not there. And I understand there's times where you need to talk to somebody, you need to vent, but then don't, don't let that run away with you, with your mouth and the things you're saying. It says support in ways that support, that show support for Christ. So I think keep that in mind when you're talking about each other, specifically in front of the kids. I think um, we just, all of us need to watch our tongues. 
Verse 23, the husband provides leadership to his wife the way Christ does to the church, not by domineering, but by cherishing. Um, if you're stubborn like me, I think sometimes the word being leadership or being led makes you cringe a little bit. Well, what if he's not a good leader? Or what if she isn't doing this? I think in culture, it's been really confusing and ugly. Um, and we all know countless stories of how this has been done wrong. But it's saying how Christ leads us. That's how he, you are to lead and he doesn't lead heavy-handed or arrogant, but rather in humility and by being a servant, laying down his life for us. I just think humility is so important then. Gentlemen, when you're um, leading like Jesus, it creates a place of security and safety and vulnerability where love can grow deeper and intimacy is much stronger. I love the word cherish. Um, it, Mark, could you leave that verse up if you don't mind? Not by domineering, but by cherishing. I, it's, this is a word that we say in our house a decent amount, is I just thank him, for Dan, for cherishing me. And the definition is to protect and care for someone lovingly. When Dan does that for me, cherishes, esteems, adores me, I just feel so loved and valued and understood that in turn it makes me want to honor and love and serve him more. It's just such a beautiful give and take. Verse 24, so just as the church submits to Christ as he exercises such leadership, wives should likewise submit to their husbands. Submission is definitely a hot button in our society, right? It's just like, oh, I'm not submitting to him, and I'm certainly not submitting to her because it's been so misused and abused in awful, awful ways. I think a lot of us can instantly think of examples of um, what submission has turned when it's not in a godly way. However, in this context, submit is to put their wants and their needs, your spouse, before your own. When that happens, it's a beautiful thing. And remember, guys, this is mutual. It's both ways, mutual submission. And in that mutual submission, there's humility and true, true love. Verse 25, husbands, go all out in your love for your wives exactly as Christ did for the church, a love marked by giving, not getting. As Christ did for the church, obviously he did like the ultimate love, you know, giving his life. I, yeah, I mean, that's pretty clear that he loves us, right? And it says going all out in your love for your wives. In that, that doesn't mean leave much room for much else. If if Dan is going all out to love me, I'm not feeling confused or insecure or just, you know, unsteady, um, wondering if he really loves me. Like, it's so crystal clear when, when you go all out to love your wife. 
Um, the love marked by giving and not getting typically goes against our flesh. Like, I think that's hard, especially on those grumpy days, those tired days you didn't sleep, there's stress, you know, money worries or whatever. Um, that kind of love is tough, but that's, you know, what the, what the word is telling us to do. And in our culture, it's definitely not necessarily done this way. That's part of why we're re unique as Jesus followers. Um, it's a lot about the, the, the taking, not the giving in love. I'm an acts of service person, which that's like a way that I feel loved is when people come alongside and do something for me or with me. And it's the best love language, I think. Um, but when um, he goes all, Dan goes all out to love me by doing something practical, it's, it's so beautiful. Like, again, there's that security in there that is just so great. I mean, other acts of service ladies, is there anything hotter than your man vacuuming the living room? Are you kidding me? It's so great, right? You know, you know. Um, that's a big tip. If your wife is acts of service, go home and vacuum today. Because it's a big deal. It's like that is going all out in love, and it's just really beautiful. Also, cleaning the bathroom. <clears throat> so, yes, that, oh. Anyway, I digress. So, giving rather than getting in our finances, in the way we spend our time, in our passions in our dreams, in the things that we love, the things that we spend energy in, is a way to continue to build each other up with that giving rather than getting, with that loving, thinking of our spouse's needs before our own. And it, it leads to such beauty and greater joy, greater intimacy, and is just um, such a great place to be. When you're in a marriage that's marked by mutual submission and you're both going all out to love each other, giving more than you're getting, you're, it's, I keep saying this, but it's just so beautiful. It's like, what else could you want or need when you both are submitted to each other mutually and trying to out-love each other? It's so, so great. Verse 26 is Christ's love makes the church whole. And remember, he's telling us to love like Christ did. So Christ's love makes the church whole. His words evoke her beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring the best out of her, dressing her in dazzling white silk, radiant with holiness. Isn't that just a beautiful word picture of how he loves us and brings out our, our natural beauty. Verse 28, and that is how husbands ought to love their wives. They're really doing themselves a favor since they're already one in marriage. I love that the ESV says, love their wife like they love their own body. That feels pretty clear to me. If you're married and you're wondering how to deal with this, this the sex, this thing called sex, it comes down to one thing, and that's to prefer one another. That love marked by giving, not getting, not my needs first, but his needs first, her needs first. 
being generous with one another, never ever using sex to manipulate. Um, we don't demand sex from your spouse, and we don't withhold it to manipulate. Th those are things that the Bible's really specific about. Instead, building one another up in love. Could we um, have the prayer team come, please? So I know Jason and I have kind of thrown out a lot of information. Um, and for a lot of us, maybe this is hard stuff or things that you're like, oh, I don't know if I can get behind that. Um, so I... I want to encourage you today, if you need hope in this area of your marriage, to come for prayer. I had a season in our marriage where I was completely without hope. There was not much at all in our marriage that looked like this Ephesians 5 passage. And it, was, it felt really long and really hard. And I didn't know if we were ever going to not be in that place of pain and not representing what the Bible's talking about. So if that's a place where you're at today, I would invite you to come and ask for prayer and let us join our hope and our faith and our strength with you and praying and believing for that. Um, if there's things in this that you're just feeling challenged with, like, I don't know what to do, you know, if there's troubles with in your intimacy or whatever it is, I just want to encourage you today to come and just ask for prayer. This, These guys up here, they're safe and, and you can be vulnerable with them and, um, you know, all the awkward. We love all the awkward and I think it's important to talk about this stuff. And I also want to encourage you, if you would like hope about being married, if that is a heart's desire of yours, we would love to pray for that with you as well. Um, because if you have that desire, I think it's a God-given, God God-breathed desire. So um, I'm just going to pray while you consider what you're going to come and get prayer for. God, I thank you that you are such a beautiful representation of love, of loving us first, putting our needs before you. And Lord, I just ask as we're being challenged in this passage that you would um, just bring deeper revelation of what this looks like, that you would help us um, be willing to lay down our life for our spouse. God, I ask that you would help us to be people marked by loving first, giving before we get. And just release your strength and your hope over these marriages represented today. Just release your hope, Jesus. Just thank you for what you're doing. God, thank you that marriage is your idea. Just release your peace today. Amen.